This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. This week is the 30th anniversary of Nirvana's 1993 album, In Utero, which was, of course, the follow-up to their culture-shaking major label debut, Nevermind. I'll have even more on that anniversary coming up soon, but today I have two really fascinating interviews. First of all, a quick conversation with Anton Corbin, the photographer and director who worked for years with U2 and Depeche Mode, among others, but also made Nirvana's final unforgettable music video, Heart Shaped Box. And then I'm very happy to be bringing you the first ever real interview with Kara Shaley. At age 23, Kara played and came up with the amazing cello parts you hear on the In Utero tracks, All Apologies and Dumb. But first, here's my conversation with Anton Corbin. So it's been 30 years since In Utero, and you, of course, directed the heart-shaped box video. I believe the treatment was already in place. You were given a finished treatment for the video, and there was later some dispute about that with the other director Kurt had worked with earlier. But did anything change about the treatment once you got it? Kurt sent me his, his treatment with, with drawings and everything by fax in those days. And I used altered bits and pieces. The, the, the big lady who represents uh, Mother Earth, that was my idea. And I think the, I think the, the road through the corn and the, 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 the birds on the cross and all, yeah. These kind of things were mine and, and the butterflies, fake butterflies. I wanted to have it slightly lighter, the video. So I used not real butterflies, not real birds but fake ones. Yeah, so that it, it, it's it's probably my most well-known video and I didn't write it. It's, uh, it's amazing for somebody to write the music and come up with a such a detailed video. Yeah, I'm, I was in awe of Kurt. Before he faxed you that treatment, did you have a conversation? I cannot recall. I, I met him before because I did photographs with them. But I know he was interested in doing something with me and Courtney recommended that he would watch the uh, Echo Nebuniman videos I did in the 80s because she lived in Liverpool for a while so she was very aware of the Echo Nebuniman uh, things I'd, I'd made and they, they were playful if you look at um, uh, Seven Seas it's school theatre in a way you know? and I've applied parts of that also to the Nirvana video Yeah. Besides the images that Kurt drew did he ever articulate what was supposed to be going on in the video or where the concept came from? No, and I didn't ask him either. There's so many things in hindsight that you wish you had done, or you always think I'll ask him all the time, or I'll speak to him about it later. No, I remember things like the whole process. He wanted to make the video look like, not ectochrome, but this, the old color films. I can't think of the name now, but anyway, it was a system that they no longer had in America. They had sold it to China or something. And the closest I could get to that was to shoot it in color, transfer everything to black and white, and then hand tint every frame. So that that's what we did in the end, and it took weeks and weeks. And what happened was you, after every cut, you color one frame. 
And if that's approved, then because we did it near San Diego, so they would then go over the border to Mexico. <laughs> and I was in a room, there were like 40 people, and they would all copy that first frame onto the rest of the frames of that particular. One second is about 24 frames. Say that the video is five minutes. So that's what, yeah, so 7,200 frames. There's a lot of frames to be done. But once Kurt realized that you could actually one moment have a shirt in blue and the next moment in green without a red, whatever, he thought he was going to use that too. And I said, we can't do that, Kurt, because then you, it never finishes if you have all these options. It's, it's good. It's good if you make things to limit yourself. So did the sets even have the same colors that we actually see in the video? More or less. More or less how we did it, because it's the best way to translate colors into black and white. If you want to go back to the color with hand tinting, then you have to write gray to start on. And actually, I've seen a picture that somebody took in color of me on the set, and that has that red behind it, yeah. And, and how long was the shoot itself? I believe it was two and a half days. We went into our third day on that one. And we had, we had an accident, or an incident rather, with the old man. Yeah. I heard that the older guy on the cross had to be taken to the hospital or something. What happened there? Unbeknownst even to him, he had cancer and something broke open, so he started to bleed. And that was quite heavy. Oh my God. You can imagine if um, the ambulance comes to the set in the studio and there's a cross there. <laughs> yeah. It looked like a, some snuff video. I, I visited him in hospital, the man, two days later, and Kurt asked me to give him a, a big boombox. Did he finish all his filming before he had to go to the hospital? How did that work? Nearly finished. There was one bit where I had to lie in bed, and there was actually somebody from the crew who was also very skinny. We dressed him up like that. I believe that Kurt was using heroin during that time and showed up high to the video shoot. Was that evident at all to you? Uh, not to me. Actually, not very tuned in to that kind of behavior that I spotted a mile away or something. No. How was the band's dynamic? How was the mood? What was the interaction like? What do you recall of that? I thought they were great. I always liked all the guys, and, and I always thought that Kurt was an exceptionally sweet guy, very sensitive and, yeah, beautiful soul. But I had one idea to create a, a heart-shaped box, and that is sitting in there, and first he didn't want to know about that, and then he saw it on the set because I had it made, and then he, they all decided they, they would do it, they do some stuff in there. So he was very open to things that he initially wasn't, and then he trusted, he, I think he trusted the process. There's a lot of close-ups of Kurt, even to the point where he's out of focus for a couple moments. Oh, he's captivating, but the out-of-focus stuff is something I do with my photography. But I was told not to do that, because it was difficult with the hand tinting. Because you don't have very defined borders, of course, and it's all soft. Yeah, so I pretended I hadn't heard that remark. Yeah, so it might have taken a bit longer. I remember we said San Diego, and it was not so much to do. Have to look at these samples every time and so i managed to write to william burroughs and and i went over to kansas for one day to do a photograph with him and then flew back to san diego yeah and he just done a single i think with kurt anything else stand out in your memory from this particular video yeah it was difficult because of course come the award season kurt was not not around and uh, so that that put a, a lot of weight on the other guys and at the MTV Awards, I, I was asked not to go on stage. Uh, it was my, my one award for MTV I ever had. But uh, yeah, that's what it is. Obviously, Heart Shaped Box was the final music video Nirvana ever made. They did MTV Unplugged, but that doesn't count. There was some talk before Kurt's death of releasing Penny Royalty as a single. And supposedly they talked to you about doing a video for that. Is there any truth to that? 
Yeah, Kurt asked me, and I was so happy with the one we just done that I said, I'm going to have to turn it down because there's no way I'm going to make as good a video as this one and you're going to be disappointed with me and I don't want that. And then he said, if you don't do it, I will never make another music video again. And I, I didn't think he was serious, but of course he never did. So in hindsight, I really wanted to have done that video, yeah. Thanks again to Anton Corbin. Now let's hear for the very first time from Kara Shaley. Thank you so much for doing this. I don't think you've done a ton of interviews about this over the years. Never, ever. I think I typed something for a guy one time because I was reading his like posting and he was asking all these questions and speculating. And I said, well, I can tell you. It's always just been weird for me. How come? Oh, I don't know. Because I just, people used to ask me to play on records and stuff. And it was always really fun. I didn't really know the magnitude of Nirvana. I just can't believe it's been 30 years. You think, wow, I was 23 years old when I did that. So you had lived in Chicago and had been dating the producer Steve Albini. But at this point, you were in school, right? I had gone to college in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia. So I flew from Athens, Georgia up to Minneapolis to do that recording. When I first moved to Athens, though, I was at orientation and I met this hippie girl and she was really nice. And she was like, oh, come on over and we'll listen to records. And she was so in love with Nirvana. Like she had the, the second album playing. And I had heard the Smells Like Teen Spirit, obviously, coming from people's cars all the time when you're in a college town. And then, of course, MTV. And I loved that song, Lithium. I think that was my favorite song. So it was, I think, February of 1993. Is that when it was? I know, I I vaguely remember, but that sounds right. It was probably cold. I remember these awesome guys picked me up at the airport. They, like, I guess they, like, helped out at the studio because they were in a band. And... I always tell people, I'm like, Wayne and Garth came and picked me up at the airport. (laughs) They were the nicest guys, and they had this band called Mad At You, which was A-T-C-H-U, and so they had these hats on that said Mad At You, and they were just hilarious, and they were so nice, and I was like, this is entertaining. Can you tell the story of how you got the call to be on the album? Kurt told Steve Albini that he wanted a cello on the record, and Steve said, oh, I have a friend who plays cello, and then Steve's like, hey... If they want a cello, do you want to fly out and do this? I'm like, yep, that's fine. It seems like you were well aware how big they were, but somehow it just didn't excite you or impact you that much. It's funny. I've met a lot of famous people, and for some reason, I'm not that faced. (laughs) Although I remember as a kid, the, the weatherman was at the museum, and I recognized him by his bow tie, and I almost had a heart attack. Were you in a band in 1993? I was actually in a band in Chicago. They were called Doubt, and they were some local Chicago musicians. And I was really excited because at the time, I think I was only 19, so they had to sneak me into clubs and stuff. I remember how exciting it was when I finally turned 21. And so Wayne and Garth pick you up, and they bring you to the studio. Yeah. I had been to that studio one time before. Have you heard about this studio at all? Pachyderm? I read about it a little bit, but tell me about your memories. I was told that it was like bought by some millionaires or something and they decided to build it. Like it was repossessed probably from somebody who had done something wrong. (laughs) And I think some guys bought it and turned it into a recording studio. It's like in the middle of nowhere, really. I had been there because I 
I went with Steve when he recorded PJ Harvey and I did the cooking. And so and I kind of knew the place. It had an indoor pool. It was very 1970s decor with the mirrored walls and shag carpet. <laughs> it was pretty funny. And so you show up and what were the guys in Nirvana doing? Hanging out in the living room. The funny thing about that place is they had tons and tons of boxes of every Star Trek episode ever. Like all the different generations of Star Trek. <laughs> so I don't remember if they were actually watching Star Trek, but I always, when I think of that place, I always think of watching Star Trek there. Now everyone's lounging around. I think Bob Weston was there and his gal was cooking. She was the cook. And so I think she had made everybody dinner and yeah, everyone's just hanging around. I think you said there were a lot of people there that Dave Grohl had his fiance there. Yeah, she was there. And and then later, I think, yeah, later Courtney came with little Francis baby, the Francis Bean baby. And did they have much to say to you when you showed up? No, I, we just hung out. And then I don't remember if we recorded that night or if it was the next day. I was only there for two days. And it was just me and Kurt and Steve in the studio. And then... Me and Steve went first so I could listen to the song because I hadn't heard the songs yet. And so I listened to the songs and I used to come up with parts pretty quickly for songs. And so I came up with something and then got there and I showed him what I came up with. I was like, yeah, that's good. Can you also, this was that song, Dumb. And he was like, yeah, can you also, I guess, mirror what I'm playing for this guitar line? And so he taught me that. And he was like, I can't remember if I tuned my cello down a half a step or not, but he like jokingly said, yeah, all rock songs are an E. We just tune down and have the steps. <laughs> they sound a little different. I'm always very efficient because of recording time and stuff. I'm just used to, I'm used to like people having very little money and needing to record really fast. I still had that mentality. It took me like three takes and then I got it. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he was laughing. And I think he said they had a friend of theirs play cello on their first album, maybe. I don't know if he was credited, but he said the speed was off. So they had to do a bunch of stuff to try to get the tuning. Because when he recorded it, it was, I think, recorded at a different speed or something. So he said it took them all day to fix that. So it was okay that it had only taken two and a half hours. One thing I would say is there's a lot of cello players who can read music and play that way. But not necessarily a ton of cello players who can work more like a guitar player or bass player in a rock band and just come up with parts on the spot. How did you become that kind of player? Yeah, that's my thing. The joke is I actually chose the cello because you could sit down. Everyone else was standing up and the cello player was sitting down and I'm notoriously lazy. So I picked the cello and later on in life, my I have back problems. So I actually, and I would write music and sing too. So I started playing standing up with so that I could sing and play at the same time. So the joke is eventually I played standing up anyway. But I quit in the eighth grade. And then like all teenagers, I got really moody. And my mom had already bought me a cello. When I'd get really moody, I would pick up the cello and just mess around on it. And so I, I did learn technically, but then I pretty much started playing by ear. You were one of the first people on earth to hear All Apologies and the song Dumb. Did you have any opinion or were you just focused on the part you were playing? I remember I heard Dumb and then when Kurt came in, I looked at him and I said, this is a really beautiful song. And I think he might have thought that was funny. But, but he was like, thank you. I was like, this is a really beautiful song. What's funny is when I think of that song in my head without even playing it, 
I hear the vocal melody and then I hear your counter melody on cello. It's a really essential part of the song. Yeah, that was the part I made up. I think I might do that a lot when I'm playing for people. I don't really play anymore. I said the last thing I did was for this wonderful guy in Seattle named Keith Cook. I don't know if you heard of him. He put out a record called Rock and Roll Riot. And I usually would say no to people later on because I just stopped playing. But he found me and got in touch with me. And his music was really interesting. But but very sadly, he passed away right after that record came out just of natural causes. And it was very heartbreaking. But yeah. And how did it work with All Apologies? The funny thing about All Apologies is Steve kept trying to talk him out of putting cello on All Apologies. Isn't that funny? He was going on and on that he shouldn't put cello on it. And then, and I think I was being snarky and I was like, that's the joy of multi-track recording. I can record it and you can take it out. <laughs> and then there was a whole conversation about should you record all that stuff because then you have to make a decision on what you want to keep and what you don't <laughs> But I think Kurt and I won in the end, and and so I got to play that. And that one was really just off the cuff. I think I only heard it once, and then I had some ideas, and I started doing stuff. And I think they just kept the, the jam part where I was just playing along. And then later on, he loved the deep sound, like the really deep groaning sound of the low notes. He was like, just lay on that for a long time. And so I just laid on that low note for him, and I got some noise parts in there. I like making noise on the cello, too. <laughs> yeah, and at the end, if you listen for some high screeching sounds at the end, that's me. We can hear you throughout the song in, in the left channel. And I guess that's just you improvising. I think I went through the song three times, maybe. Yeah, I feel bad now because I'm like, I should have taken more time and <laughs> tried to sound a little better because it's pretty rough. <laughs> it's a rough band. Yeah, sometimes the, I like the imperfections in, in music. Besides following the guitar line, did Kurt have specific feedback about what you were playing? Just wanting extra of the low notes and all apologies at the end. Like you can hear it at the very end. The droning on the low string. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And you also played on another song, Marigold, which has some particular historical significance. It's a Dave Grohl song that came out as a Nirvana B-side. Eventually, Dave came in because he wanted to record that Marigold song. And so I think I might have just been there and they're like, want to put some cello on it? And then you pretty much never heard from them again, I guess. Yeah, I never. The only thing I the only thing I heard from them. This is embarrassing, but I am insulted by Courtney Love in the unauthorized biography or that "Come as You Are" book. In Michael Azrod's book "Come as You Are," which I'm actually talking to Michael about, basically Steve apparently called her a quote unquote psycho hose beast, and she responded by saying, "The only way Steve Albini would think I was a perfect girlfriend," Courtney said, "would be if I was from the East Coast." played the cello, had small hoop earrings, wore black turtlenecks, had all matching luggage and never said a word. And you think she was attempting to describe you. And she doesn't say my name, but she makes all these references that like all my friends, it got reprinted in the Chicago Reader and all my friends like are sending me this thing going, look at what she said about me. Yeah, I'm like, that's pretty catty for a so-called feminist. So I sent her a joke letter teasing her about it and she called me in the middle of the night one time, and I honestly was half asleep. But her way of apologizing was saying, I'm sorry you thought I was talking about you. Yeah. 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 And she said, so I remember some of the things because I was teasing her about them. One of them was, so then I'm not even from the East Coast, I'm from the Midwest. So my first thing was, when did the Midwest move to the East Coast? I think she said I wore all black, which I probably had a, a black shirt on at the time. And she said I had all matching luggage. That was a weird thing. Wore little hoop earrings, all matching luggage, and never said a word. That's it. Yeah. So I sent her a letter and I said, I thought you were a feminist. And I'm like, and... Let me tell you, I was like, I addressed all of them. I even sent her a little pair of hoop earrings and I said, you should try these. They're great lightweight for travel and oh so versatile. I was like, I only had one piece of luggage. Did it match itself? I might have quoted the Smiths and said I wear black on the outside because black is how I feel on the inside or something. That sounds like something. Yeah, she called me in the middle of the night and, and said she was sorry that I thought she was talking about, which I just laughed. I was like, oh, come on, Courtney. She said, I might have had you in mind. So then I think she invited, she said she was putting me on the guest list for her show in Athens, Georgia. And then some good friends of mine that I had also played on a recording for were playing down in Savannah that same night. And so my girlfriend and I drove down 
in her convertible Savannah instead. And I was like, I blew off Courtney Love for you guys. Was there ever a moment when the full impact of I played on one of the most anticipated albums ever made with one of the biggest bands ever, did it ever hit you? One time. The only time it hit me was I had a job as a waitress at a hotel and in the bar they had a jukebox and All Apologies was on the jukebox. So every once in a while I would go in there to bring in like food to somebody and All Apologies would be on the radio and it would make me laugh. I'd be like, how funny I'm on the, or I'm on the jukebox. (laughs) And this is a very basic question. Did you get paid for this? So that's another funny thing. I got a check for my 2.5 hours of studio time. And it was like $275. But it it was from Geffen Records. And actually, every once in a while, people contact me through Facebook. And there's a guy that I was going to send it to because he asked if I could sign something for like a gift he was putting together for, I think, maybe his son or daughter. And I thought, I'm totally going to find the pay stub for $275 and sign it and send it to him because that would be funny. I have since gotten recompensated. So they send me royalties for something every year. I think it's like sound sound performance or live performances or something. I don't know. I feel like they mostly come from Japan and Australia or something. I don't know. So eventually you started to get royalties. Is it a, a pretty tiny amount of money or has it made any difference in your life? Oh, it's helped out in some times. In fact, sometimes I always joke, we got a good one right before our wedding. And I was like, oh, Kurt Cobain knew we needed some money. (laughs) (laughs) He sent us this to help us out. And then right before we moved from Georgia to Wisconsin, I got a nice one that was very helpful for us. So I always joke to my husband that he's looking out for me up there. (laughs) Let's get her a good royalty this year. Now, Nirvana did later end up having a touring cello player. And that wasn't you, unfortunately. Was that ever an annoyance for you that it wasn't you? I think what happened is they knew that at the time, because of my association with Steve, they had a weird thing going on with him after the recording. And so I'm sure they were just like, we don't want anything. (laughs) Which is sad because I'm actually a really good live performer. I have a lot of fun playing live and I I move around a lot and and I would have had fun with that, I think. But, But it's okay. I wasn't that upset. They had a falling out after Steve helped create an impression in the press that Nirvana's label was trying to meddle in this album. But it's unfair that through that conflict, you then got screwed out of potentially being on the tour and and being on Nirvana Unplugged. That sucks. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. I might have been like really nervous and screwed it up anyways. I don't even think they sent you a copy of the album, did they? Yeah, there's a post on Facebook somewhere because I went into my friend's record store in Athens. We'll give him a little plug here, Walk Street Records. I saw they had the album and I still didn't own a copy. So I bought it and the guy that worked there was laughing and he took our picture and he was like, hey, I just got to sell the cello player on this album. Her first copy of this album. Incredibly chill about this whole thing. It's pretty funny. Yeah, my husband laughs about that all the time. He's It doesn't really phase her at all. He's, she's so cool about it. Like when you do things when you're younger and then you get older and you're like, that's weird. Did I really do that? It wasn't that long after all this that Kurt died. Do you remember your reaction? I was sitting in the Mean Bean. <laughs> I remember where I was. I was my, my girlfriend worked at the Mean Bean and she used to make me lunch every day. And we were sitting there and then we heard it on the radio and we were like, what? I was like, that's really sad. I just thought it was really sad. I figured he probably had depression and stuff like that. 
And how stressful must it have been to be Kurt Cobain, right? I find the whole music industry quite creepy, honestly. It's a weird sort of, I almost want to co-edit like a, a host and parasite relationship. Yeah, they're helping you enable, you know, what you want to do, but they also own you. At, like, they make you probably feel like you have no personal life anymore. Like, I can't imagine how awful that would be to not have a private life. And you did keep playing music for years afterwards, right? Yeah, I played in, I had a band in Athens called Martyr and Pistol. And uh, I started off just playing solo um, with my friend Jason Emond. He'd play drums for me. And sometimes we would just, uh, our friends, we had friends that owned bars and we would just set up and make people listen to us play without telling them that they were going to have to listen to us play. <laughs> Honestly, the last time I played was when I recorded for that guy in Seattle. And I couldn't play I have really bad back problems, so it started to become a chore to play, but I'll probably play again at some point. I don't know. Do you still have the cello you played on in utero? I was thinking about that because a friend of mine from New York sent me a postcard one time, and he signed the end of it, bless you and your plywood cello, because I think I used to joke to everybody that I thought my cello was probably made out of plywood, because it was one of those student cellos that my mom bought me in the eighth grade. I feel bad. It's just been in a case upstairs for, man, like eight years. I guess I haven't played in about eight years. It honestly should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They would want it on the wall, I think. But listen, as chill as you are about this, people will probably still be hearing you play on All Apologies in, in 50 years, the way it's going for Nirvana. Hey, have you noticed a lot of young people have these like pastel colored Nirvana shirts? What's that all about? Yes, it's huge. Because you know I go up to them. You know me. I go up to them and I'm like, do you like Nirvana? And the first time I did that, it was two girls. They looked like they were 13. And they got really embarrassed. And they're like, I don't know who that is. I just thought the shirt was cute. Yeah. The last time I asked a guy, he actually was a huge fan. So I was happy. Did you end up telling him that you played with them? I did. And he was like, that's so cool. But he didn't seem that phased either. He was just like, oh, okay, nice to meet you. Cool. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.